Welcome back to Winning with Connections, the WWC podcast. Today, we are so excited to have Liz O'Brien here. Liz was a partner of WWC Globals for years. I don't want to say how many years through the Hiring Our Heroes program. And we'll talk a little bit in a second about how that relationship started and how it grew over the years. Liz recently left Hiring Our Heroes to take on the CEO role with Freedom Learning Group, which is a really cool organization started by a veteran and a spouse, correct, Liz? Yep, Marine Corps family. And they have a really neat model that has done really, really well. And Liz was brought in to kind of take it to the next level, uh, which she also did for us within Gear Career. So Donna, do you want to give a little bit of background of our relationship with Liz and and talk to Liz a little bit about the early days of our relationship? Yeah, and I'm actually really curious to to have Liz share with us sort of how how this how this all played out on her side. We had started in gear career because as accidental entrepreneurs who, you know, kind of found some secret sauce in in engaging military spouses on the bases where they were with their active duty troop. We at some point had too many talented and well credentialed military spouses to employ and so decided to launch a nonprofit to support those spouses to do what we had always wanted to do on a corporate level and only got to years later, which was to allow military spouses to port their career from one place to the next and to sell the value proposition of engaging military spouses as they should be a very sought after labor pool. So when we started in gear career, uh, that took off really well. And we had Amanda Crow managing it for us. And she did a terrific job. She brought it up to where I think there were about 26 chapters around the world. In some locations, it was it was chapters of military spouses who were working and who would sort of hand off referrals, kind of passing the baton to the incoming spouses as they left. And then in some places like Fort Polk, where we had Amy Bontrager start up a group, they just did business reading because there literally was no industry around the base. So Amanda had grown into about 25 chapters with like 20 members per chapter. And we were starting to think, gosh, this has really taken on a life of its own. If only we had this, this infrastructure to be able to really grow it big. And so that, you know, we don't have to do this organically over 20 years because this is needed now. And, and right around the same time, the hiring our heroes group was already uh, attuned to the military spouse employment needs and, and was working on it. And I think it was about the same time that Haley mentioned to us that Liz O'Brien was going to be taking over as the lead over there at at Hiring Our Heroes. And I think, Lauren, you had the first meeting with her. I did. Liz, you remember that meeting? It was a great meeting. Uh, It was one of the best meetings I think I've ever had because we were all kind of firing on all cylinders. Do you want to take us through a little bit of kind of what we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. But I think probably the the most important piece to to tie together here is that from day one, after I was introduced to both of you, you really opened your arms and your doors to me, uh, as I've watched you do with so many other military spouses as they've navigated their paths to success. And I, I think that's something that we can't stress enough to folks about the impact that we can each have on other military spouses and setting them on on paths to success and when we're willing to share information. So I, I think behind the scenes, you know, on my side, you guys were having one conversation and I was having another conversation. And for everyone's awareness, I had, a long time ago was a college basketball 
basketball coach and and Haley, who was one of your co-founders, um, had actually played basketball for me at West Point, And we had stayed uh, in touch for many years to the point that even when I was in Germany, I had reached out to her asking if it was possible for me to start an in-gear career chapter over there because I was going through my own struggles of not coaching college basketball and really kind of feeling lost over there. I didn't know that. I didn't know you. That's hilarious. Yep. Um, And there was another time I was up at West Point visiting on one of our trips home and was sitting in Haley's kitchen and she was redoing the website for in-gear career. So uh, it was all of these pieces as I look back that, uh, you know, in in hindsight, just seems like everything was was meant to be. And so conversations on our side behind the scenes were I had been a coordinator at Hiring Our Heroes, came in as the lowest paid position at the age of 40, reporting to a 26 year old. uh, And a year later, we were going through some organizational transformation. And I was moved into the director role. And I was in that for at least a solid five days before uh, I walked into Eric Eversole's office and said, you know, we've been talking about uh, launching chapter-based networks across the country. I don't really want to be duplicative, though, because there's a solution out there that already exists. And what do you think about if we have some... (laughs) conversations with Donna and Lauren from WWC and talk through merging with InGear Career. So that was the first five days on the job. And certainly to Eric's credit, he didn't throw me out of his office because it's not something we'd ever done before at Hiring Our Heroes. But I've always been adamant that we don't need to be duplicative in this space and that we need to be collaborative and leverage pieces that are already out there. Yeah. And so that's how we ended up in that conference room with everybody kind of fired up. And uh, you guys came up to D.C. and I know you'd had some other meetings and we went into that that conference room and, and came out on a path really for what I think was sending a really strong message to the country that we can do this and we can be collaborative. It always amazed me because, you know, we've been in the for-profit sector for the most part. I mean, that was that's what what Donna and I have done. And we kind of had this side gig almost of the the nonprofit. I was always amazed at how poorly some nonprofits worked with other nonprofits, how much backstabbing there was, how much difficulty there was in turf wars and, you know, and duplication of efforts and you know, fighting for the dollars, the limited dollars that were there and what have you. And that was one of the things I think in that meeting that struck me was uh, and one of the reasons I felt comfortable, at least personally, handing this this baby that we had kind of birthed the three of us together over to you and saying, you can take this. You've got a you've got a backbone of an organization that has a ton more money than we ever did. We were funding it out of Donna's and my personal pockets for the, the, I don't know, four or five years that we, that we had it before we handed it over to you guys. You guys had this, this incredible funding machine. You had this incredible set of resources and kind of a scaffolding to put this onto. And you were very clearly and very differently than a lot of people in the, in the nonprofit sector focused on the outcomes and focused yes. on getting this done right, not caring about who got credit for it, not caring about kind of, again, who, who got credit for it, who, who, who got to stand up and say, this is our thing. It wasn't about the press release. It was about the actual service to the, the service member or their spouse that really mattered. And, and sitting in that meeting, having been in other meetings with other organizations, that was what struck me the most. And that, that's always what struck me in the, in the nonprofit world as something that really wasn't 
typical. And so, Liz, can you talk a little bit about, so we handed this over to you. We had, again, Amanda had taken this to a new heights. We handed this over to you with Amanda to take it to the, to the next level. Can you talk a little bit about where, where you guys took it from there and what in gear then called the military spouse professional network after that, what you did with it? Because it's, it's pretty incredible what you took it from and what you took it to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and to be very clear, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of collaborative effort uh, and it was a lot of sacrifice on Amanda's part. Right. Like, you know, she she went from managing, say, 25 networks to all of a sudden we're, we're putting markers on her desk for 50 to 60 networks and massive growth. And what does that look like? But ultimately what it led to was us having a ground game uh, that I'm not sure exists anywhere else in the country that's solely focused on spouse employment. And I want to be clear about that. We have always kept our focus when I was at HOH on spouses and employment and not really uh, going wider than that. How do we create solutions at the community-based level? And really from that ground game, the spouse economic empowerment zones were launched where, where employers were engaged outside the gates to match with the access to the talent pipeline that was there. And it really uh, allowed us also then to bring together other nonprofits that were in this space. Because what I always come back to is whether I was at Hiring Our Heroes or now at Freedom Learning Group, uh, for you guys at WWC, we don't have to be the solution for everybody, right? We are part of the solution at large. And it's up to us to make sure that we are then handing off folks to the right organizations if we're not the right fit for them. So it allowed us to really build that collaborative spirit uh, with other nonprofits and for-profits that were in those areas. Um, and I want to say today, uh, and I haven't checked recently, and obviously I'm not still at hiring our heroes, but I believe that there are about 60,000 military spouses that now belong to the military spouse professional network. So uh, yeah, doesn't that give you chills? Because I know it gives me chills. It really I, does. I yeah. remember hearing about the Japan chapter. There's actually two different chapters in Okinawa, and each of them has over a thousand members. And when I heard about that, it was just this confirmation of, of sort of all of our hopes and dreams for the organization. I thought, you know, Liz and Amanda pulled it off. That's fantastic. It really is. And so that's what when I think about what you guys did. Right. So start up business, launch a nonprofit, hand it off to a slightly larger nonprofit, rally together big business. Right. Like this is the holistic circle that, that we ask and beg and rally America at large to be a part of. And so I just think it's a wonderful example of what true collaboration can do to impact any underserved population. Right. It doesn't just have to be military spouses, but it's a model that can be used across the country. Totally. So you left HOH, shocked all of us, by the way, uh, by leaving HOH, although, you know, good on you and you had done so much for them that that it made sense and it was certainly time. But what was the next? So, so talk me through where you are now and what you guys do. Absolutely. So I am currently the CEO at Freedom Learning Group. We are a service-disabled veteran-owned small business that was founded by a Marine and his wife. Much like you guys sitting in Italy, they were sitting in Germany and thought, wow, we have access to this, this great pipeline of talent, over-educated, underemployed, and the learning community really needs to 
be connected to them. And so they launched Freedom Freedom Learning Group about four years ago, but they built the model uh, it's basically grounded in technology and remote work. And it's been a really successful model because it was built to serve the needs of this population, which just has given us such tremendous access to really talented military spouses and veterans because we're able to put them to work anywhere in the world. That's amazing. And I, as, as sort of the, the, I, I, my mind always goes to sort of the, the, the paperwork and the taxes, which we know military spouses are fantastic at. How do you employ people all over the world and make sure that Freedom Learning Group is compliant with the employment laws and the tax laws and all of that? Is that complicated? So what's important for us is that we put military spouses to work as 1099 contractors. And so for each uh, spouse, veteran or employee, because we, we also employ civilians, it's up to them to file their taxes in their home of record and make sure that they're compliant. And so for us, the 1099 model has worked extremely well. We're founded in, and grounded in project-based work, not unlike what you guys do on the government contracting side, we're doing on the commercial side. We go out and bid for projects and then leverage our work our, our workforce pipeline to put folks into the right job. So folks may be working for us for three months, five months, roll off for a couple of months, come back on. And so for us, the 1099 model has worked extremely well in a distributed organization. Can I ask you another question? Yes. So you've always been great about managing teams and, and you have a hard time actually accepting compliments. I remember complimenting you on, on some amazing events you put together and, and your answer is always the same teamwork makes the dream work <laughs> as, as an employer of military spouses and veterans i've noticed that there's a little bit of a different flavor to more the veterans than the spouses and i wonder if you've seen this depending on what branch of the service they came out of do, do you see kind of different flavors among these teams among the sort of navy community versus the army community Absolutely. You know, there, there's always a difference a little bit in personality based on uh, the culture that you've been immersed in for years. So whether uh, you're a Coast Guard, Air Force, Navy, Marines or, or Army, you, you can start to pick certain pieces up just as you're interacting with folks, even on team calls. Right. Like, I, I really feel like we are the network of networks because we're so geographically dispersed and you can start to pick those pockets out, you know, whether someone's calling in from San Diego or Japan or Guam, et cetera. But you start to see some of those underlying nuances there. Certainly our, our friends that are, are a little bit with the marine flavor tend to be a tad more direct uh, in their messaging. <laughs> and you're never unclear about where you stand or what they need. Um, and so you can really start to pick those pieces of finesse up as well. Uh, but I, I will tell you, we have a lot of fun uh, and we have every branch of service represented at Freedom Learning Group in, in our project-based work, uh, which makes me really excited. I, I love when I get on calls and uh, oh, we had a call last Friday and Mick dialed in from uh, Alabama where, you know, he's transitioned out of the army, but there was a, a lot of uh, a lot of army vernacular coming through, a lot of high energy. Uh, and I was about ready to get on a plane and fly down there to spend the weekend and just hang out and soak in all his math genius. That's awesome. And you yourself are a army spouse, correct? That's right. And it's it's really, truly what what brought me back in the day to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, just like you guys, we all everybody thinks they're special unicorns. Right. But ultimately, 
military spouses really have that common thread of regardless if they're a recovering college basketball coach, a lawyer, uh, a PhD from Dartmouth, we have had those struggles where we face significant periods of unemployment. And so for me, that really um, has now driven my purpose in life to create solutions for our military families so they have those paths to economic opportunity. One of my favorite things in, in your story, and I've heard you know you talk about your story. I don't know every trip I've ever taken with you, which is a lot because we we keep going on these and doing these things together. One of my favorite things about your stories is your reinvention, right? You were literally a college basketball coach, which is not an easy thing to be as a military spouse, clearly, because you know you you have to be in one school for a, a good amount of time. So talk to me about the reinvention of your career through this process. I mean, that 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 to me is one of the, the most interesting stories. And I've heard so many stories from so many spouses, but that is one of the most interesting stories is to go from a really high achieving college basketball coach. I mean, you were the coach at, at West Point. You had been at University of Hawaii, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You, you kind of follow our moves based on where I was right. Going, right? <laughs> um, but at some point, you really did have to reinvent yourself. And that's that's hard for anyone, but particularly for someone where the career trajectory is, is pretty clear and put, pretty laid out and really hard to to modify within that sphere. Right. It's it's this is the way that you become a college basketball coach and you really can't play around with that, that at all. Um, how did you do that? What, what did you do when you finally said, okay, this isn't going to work with college ball? Yeah. So we, we went through a stage where we ended up moving seven times in eight years. And so, as you can imagine, like so many other spouses, I was, I I was desperate to stay in my industry. So I was taking whatever job was open wherever we were moving, right? Like what are the chances there's a school in Hawaii that has a job open that's equal to the level of salary, et cetera, uh, that I'm currently receiving. Right. And so, uh, my salary kept going down every move. Eventually found myself in Germany coaching high school boys basketball uh, through an AAU program, which blessing in disguise absolutely loved and, and really stretched me as a coach and, and got to challenge myself. But when we moved from there back to D.C., I had to have a, a come to a Jesus talk with myself, you know, that my salary is continuing to go down. I'm not advancing in my career. Obviously, a very competitive career, right? Like you're comparing yourself to your peers all the time, et cetera. I should be at this level. I'm not. So there were certainly feelings of failure there as well. And so I, I had a, a friend then at the Chamber of Commerce, uh, Noreen, who was leading the spouse program. And I did what every normal person does and, and reached out to ask uh, if she had any contacts at the Washington Wizards. I'd like to go work in their front office. <laughs> And she said, no, but I have a coordinator job open on my team. Are you interested? And I took a step back and thought, maybe this is the time that my career, I can feel passionate or I can feel purpose around finding opportunities for spouses. Uh, But really, the big question I had to ask myself was, could I be humble enough to go into this role? Could I be the lowest paid position at hiring our heroes, not even report directly to the director of the program and and kind of be able to to deal with that, right? It's a lot. And there were a lot of hard conversations and a lot of uh, waking up every day and reminding myself that 
Uh, I'm not dictated by, you know, I'm I'm not defined by my title, that I can go out and see solutions and build solutions and be part of that. And so, uh, you know, um, the path worked out. Um, and for you guys being accidental entrepreneurs, I'm probably an accidental CEO with the best of them. But it really came back to every day. Could I check myself? Could I be humble enough to go through this? And so it's not right for everybody, but the purpose of hiring our heroes really drove me. And I could get some great satisfaction out of doing good work for a great community. And you did such a great job, I think, translating your coaching skills into hiring our heroes and just growing that program tremendously. I know that you have a ingrained sense of teamwork. How do you bring the best out of a team? What are the tweaks that you make or what are the, you know, the things that will take you into an overperform situation when you bring a number of people together behind a cause? Yeah. So, um, Gosh, this goes back to being humble. And I think probably the the closest style of leadership that I've found that compares to really what I try and embrace. And and when you go back to coaching, right, you have to, if you're coaching college basketball, you have the point guard, the post player, the wings, et cetera. And you have to give each of them one, you have to recruit the right people to come work for your organization, right, or play for your for your team. Two, You then have to make sure that they fully understand the mission. Three, you have to make sure that they each understand the role of everybody else out there and that they're working together. And finally, you have to empower them to do their job, whether it's on the court or it's it's in corporate America. And so for me, you know, it's that that piece of empowerment. It's that trust in the mission. And it's really making sure that everybody in an organization shares that common mission through understanding what's going on in other places. But ultimately, as a leader, especially, you know, I think you guys have to to wrap your navigate this as well. We have geographically dispersed workforces all over the country. And so if I put people in power, I then have to empower them to manage the people and make the decisions. And that's really what I took from all those years of coaching college basketball. I had to trust that the point guard was going to come down and call the right play at the right time and make the right decision based on all the preparation that we had done. And so for me, it was always coming back to making sure I surround myself with the right people, hire the right people, share the mission with them, give them the tools to be successful, and then step back and, and really let them fly. Uh, and it's it's not an approach that's for everybody, but for me and for, an, for the organizations that I've had to lead in geographically dispersed workforces, it really forced my hand on it. And it doesn't mean you don't call a timeout. It doesn't mean you don't circle folks back and have conversations and make tweaks and really evolve over time. But those are the, the pieces that I've been able to pull out over the course of of my years of leadership and and translate, you know, coaching college basketball into corporate America. I'd say um, Stanley McChrystal probably is the closest in terms of his leadership style and what he's put out there that I found to uh, trying to translate what I believe from college basketball to corporate America. It's funny. You know, you use the language and mind you, I am a sports mother, but I am not a sports person myself. Like I was terrible at at sports growing up, it turns out I just really had no depth perception and therefore couldn't do anything. So, but I watched my kids do this. And, but the language that you use for sports really does translate so much into leadership and running a company. So now one thing I want to kind of pick out a little bit and explore a little bit with you is you were, you know, first in college ball, which is an entirely different world, then in the nonprofit sector, now in the for-profit 
sector, although doing a lot of the mission focused work that you did in the nonprofit sector, just in a in a for profit context. What are the differences you see? What did you not know from the when you were working on the nonprofit side that suddenly became clear now that you're working on the for profit side, for example? Or what do you see as kind of lessons learned throughout that that career trajectory that you've had? Well, I'd say there are three pieces that I come back to now uh, on the for-profit side that we certainly saw on the nonprofit side. But there's a difference when you have to go out and raise money on the nonprofit side, and sometimes you have to adapt to what your funders want, as opposed to, you know, on, on the for-profit side, you know, in the simplest terms, certainly we're not creating a widget in a in a manufacturing location, but we are creating a product based on our clients' demands. So whether it's Microsoft Azure, marketing, microbiology, right? We're serving a need uh, and we can sell that to the folks that need it, to the clients that need that. And so for us, it's it, we're, I'm really able now to hone in on scalable, meaningful revenue growth on our quality and our workforce pipeline and being really intentional about those three things over and over. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to us holding our workforce to a high standard of production and quality. And that's really what we're known for, because obviously, anytime you employ spouses or veterans, you're going to have that leg up on competition. But uh, when you also talk about, oh, gosh, <laughs> leaving the nonprofit world, going to for profit small business in the midst of a pandemic. Right. We had to ask them <laughs> some <laughs> some serious uh, you know, go through a serious thought process of what does a small business look like in the height of a pandemic? Will we thrive? Will we crash? What options are out there? So a lot of really intentional, open-ended conversations and, and sort of being vulnerable, which I, I think is hard to do uh, sometimes for folks. And then wrapping my head around the entire financial model, right? That's not something we had to operate off of in a nonprofit, but it is <laughs> certainly relevant in the for-profit side. So yeah, moving in a pandemic, wrapping our, my head around a financial model uh, and making sure that we, we continue to not only uh, survive, but that we thrive. Right. Yeah. And, and your model actually has done really well in the pandemic. I know you guys, as like we did, kind of leveraged technology um, and leveraged a geographic, geographically dispersed workforce early on in your model. And so that that's how you were built. So the pandemic has not really negatively impacted you, maybe maybe the opposite compared to, to most firms that are operating now, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I have to give all the credit in the world to Nathan and Stacy, who are co-founders, because they built this model, which I keep coming back to over and over again. If America would just look to the military population, right, this subset of American population, whatever solutions we have to create here are eventually going to be scalable to America at large, whether it's affordable, accessible, safe childcare, remote, portable work, et cetera. I feel like we're always just a, a smidge ahead of everyone else. And so they built this company on the backs of technology and remote work. So even at the height of a global pandemic, we increased our partner base. We exceeded expectations of clients. We were able to expand while our competition was closing their brick and mortar locations and then having to get everybody up and running at home. And so when you think about this, right, in September, I think it was about 865,000 women dropped out of the workforce, right? But we at Freedom Learning Group continued to grow our workforce because our, our model was based and built on employing a 
population that's 92% female. And I think what I learned during this whole process, though, it wasn't just the remote work option. We really honed in on that flexible option as well. So, um, you know, I'm willing to have the so that I can have the best talent on this team. I'm willing to take phone calls and text messages from our director of public affairs at 1130 at night because that's the time that best fits her productivity. And so when you think about this high quality of work on a virtual platform thriving in the midst of covid, it's, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys. You guys have figured that out in a way that is meaningful and useful, but it doesn't change your model. It, it, it really just builds upon the model that you guys have already put forth, which I think is, is even more important than flexing to the realities. You already had flexed to the realities well before this happened. So that's, that's important. So what, what's next for you guys? I know you're working really well in the commercial sector, I know there's there's always some uh, government contracting for anyone who's been around government uh, for a while. Where else are you guys? I mean, you, it, it seems like the sky's the limit for you guys. What what what's next? Yep. It, right. The sky's always the limit. I mean, you can start to get excited and then you, I always have to say, OK, slow down, check yourself. Right. What works in reality? Um, and so we were always prior to COVID, really serving the publishing community. And and in light of COVID, uh, we've been able to push into corporate America. We've been able to push into universities. Everybody was scrambling to to move to remote workforce. With that, uh, you know, they had to to move their curriculum, their content, et cetera. So we're able to serve as a solution for them. But what I've learned during this process also, you know, we we have always been committed to reskilling and upskilling military spouses. But in 2021, you'll see us roll out structured last mile training where we take spouses, put them through cohorts of instructional design, through project management uh, cohorts, uh, and it allows us to put a better structure of employee into the workforce to serve our clients. Um, so it's going to allow us to scale more quickly there. And then eventually, I think you'll you'll see us take a nod to uh, exploring options as a subcontractor on, on the government side, you know, DOD, DOL, the VA, they all have massive amounts of um learning and curriculum that exists. We'll, we'll never stray from our, our true mission um, around content and curriculum development, but there's certainly an opportunity for us to serve the government side as well. Well, you know what? We're all in for partnerships with you guys. I would partner with you on pretty much anything that, that we could. So stay tuned. We'll hopefully have some, some stuff with WWC and Freedom Learning Group together. Awesome. That would be a blast. What, what better story, right, than that you right? guys your your hearts and your arms to me probably at least half a decade ago now and have continued to do so. And I, I can't think of a time where I haven't reached out to either one of you and not gotten a response or an extension of a hand up. And, and it's just something that you guys modeled so well from the very start that I've tried so very hard to replicate in my interactions with other folks as well. I, I think you did that from day one. And I, and I think that's part of sort of the sh- shared values of this community. I think as military spouses, 
we're used to that, right? We're all used to being in a new environment. We're all used to reaching out to our peers and asking for help. And I think we're all uh, used to offering that help and that collaboration, which is, is again, one of the things that makes this, this labor force so fantastic. But I really want to thank you for everything that you've done in particular for, for working military spouses. It, it was amazing to watch it uh, at Hiring Our Heroes. It's amazing to watch it now, and, and it's completely our pleasure to, uh, to say that we're affiliated with you. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you, guys. Well, this was fun. We'll do this again sometime and, and never count out military spouses because, wow, if you put us to it, you know, we'll, we'll certainly do something uh, with it. So, Liz, thank you for everything that you've done for military spouses. And I can't wait to see where you guys go next. I can't either. Thank you guys for your support.